Well, if you don't know it, the season of giving is upon us, right? This week is Thanksgiving already. And after Thanksgiving, we usually now, as a a nation, have what's turned almost into a sub-holiday, Black Friday. And if you're like me, your inbox and your mailbox is full of advertisements, right? Everybody is telling you all the things that you need to buy and the things that you don't have and that you really should have and all of the, the gifts that you need to prepare for as Christmas is on the way, right? That is, is where we're at. And, and here's the thing about that. Um, as we think about the gifts and giving gifts, because that's what we're going to look at here in this passage today, I want to recognize the fact that some of you are great gift givers. And most of you probably know who you are. (laughs) And then there's others of us that are not so great when it comes to giving gifts. And most of us know who we are (laughs) when when it comes to that. But great gift givers always seem to know how to choose the right thing for the right person. You're thoughtful, you're well-planned, you're meticulous in blessing others with gifts, whereas a lot of the rest of us struggle in this area. I'm one of those that have a terrible time trying to figure out what the perfect gift might be. Now, I'm not as bad as some people, because every once in a while, I'll find one, and I'll see something, and I'll immediately think, oh, this would be perfect for this person, and I can do that. But what about all the other times? Because Birthdays pile up, anniversaries pile up, Christmases pile up. It's, it's like, it feels like every other week or month, it's like, oh, I need a gift for that. I, I want to give a gift to this person, and, and, and it's not always um, my strong suit. I, I will give you a pro tip, because I've read articles on this, how to be a good gift giver. If you wait until the special day gets close, you've already waited too long. Real gift givers, they're like buying gifts all the time, year-round. And they're stashing them, hiding them somewhere for the time that, oh, I have a gift for that person. Oh, oh, this, this is coming up? Oh, great, no problem. My wife's that way. It's like all of a sudden we get last minute invited to something, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, we need a gift. She's like, oh, don't worry, I've got, I've got one. Uh, this, this works, right? Um, that's how those real gift givers are. But as we study James today, what we find out is that giving gifts is not a human invention. In fact, the greatest giver of gifts is God himself. And his gifts bless us and transform us in ways that we can and should celebrate and be grateful for. So I felt like as I was studying through this passage and thinking of the week that we are entering into the Thanksgiving week, I'm like, man, this is a perfect time to hear this message. And I think that it's important that we learn to keep our eyes set on the goodness and the generosity of God. So let's, let's read these two verses here to, together today in James 1, verse 17 and 18. Here's what it says. And you, you might know this, this uh, passage. This is a well-known section of James. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom... There is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
Now let's walk through this a little bit together. In this section, like I said earlier, James, he steps back for a moment before continuing all the practical commands. James, who's going to tell us, hey, do this, don't do that, do this. Last week, we talked about temptation and lies and deception and, and the desires that we have. And he's, he was laying it out for us in that. But here he kind of steps back and he does it so that we could be reminded about who God is and who we are to him. Because as we'll see throughout the book of James, it's not just about doing stuff or getting this list of do's and don'ts all right. No, it's actually, when we talk about the things that we do, it all has to come out first out of relationship with him. Because what we find out is the stuff that we do or the stuff that we don't do, that is not what puts us in right relationship with God. It's actually who he is and our faith in him. That's where everything starts. Then you can start looking at, okay, now how does that then affect my life? But it's not the other way around. Well, I'll start by doing really good. Then God will pay attention to me. Then he'll love me. Then I'll get it all. Once I'm all together, then I can come to God. That's not at all what the gospel is and what the gospel says. All right? Now, we, we recognize that this section is really right on the, the, the back of that heavy message from last week, which told us the truth about temptation and warned us about deception and lies. But it's still tied to that. Because one of the lies that we are told in this world is that we are insignificant. That you don't matter. That you do not have deep meaning. That our existence is in some sort, it's just this cosmic accident. All right? And that's what, what you, as you, you study through and you talk with people, that, that only say, well, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. First off, it's, they're not incompatible. <laughs> God is the creator of science. But with that thought, they're like, and the science says that it just so happened that in this cosmic, great cosmic storm that took place, lightning hit a puddle on this planet, and because of that primordial ooze, a, a frog climbed, climbed out of the water onto the land, and from then on, it became me. And so I'm really just part of the mud of you know, prehistoric time, right? That's, that's how the whole thing goes. And, and, and we have this, this kind of uh, uh, world around us that says, yeah, we're just this cosmic accident. We're specks in the universe that mean nothing. Now, the universe is massive, and we are small in comparison to it, but that doesn't correlate to insignificance. Just because you're little in the big picture, doesn't mean that you don't matter, okay? And this, the, that secular opinion that there is no God, and even if there is, then he, she, or it has no interest or interaction with humans, right? That's the next step that people will say. Well, okay, maybe there was a God who set the earth spinning and then has vanished off into some other dimension, right? But the picture of God that James paints is very different than that view. The God described in the Bible is a God who is actually captivated by people. He loves his creation, and especially humans. And he's paying attention, uh, paying attention to our lives and, and what we're going through and the experiences that we have in this world. And the Bible also teaches us that he pours out love towards humanity 
with a steady stream of love. And as James says here, he's constantly giving us good and perfect gifts. And he looks down from heaven for opportunities to bless us. It's very different than this, this picture, this image of some God sitting on a throne, kind of begrudgingly giving gifts every once in a while. You know, oh, well, they begged long enough. I guess I'll give them this, this little, you know, bit. No, that's not what we see. Instead, we see this God who is paying attention to you and cares about you and loves you and wants to bless you. Now, as human beings, we have plenty of limitations. Uh, in fact, in order to give a perfect gift, we don't have to be perfect, right? Even to give a good gift, we don't even have to be good. The gift stands on its own. It doesn't necessarily matter about the giver of that gift. And that's partially because of our definition of what is good and perfect. Um, that definition is limited by our imperfect understanding of what is actually good and perfect. Sometimes the things that we think are good or perfect are actually things that we, we shouldn't at all. But the, the, the gifts that come from God, they are in a category of their own. He is a different level of goodness and perfection. Okay? Here's a statement that you've probably all heard before, and it shouldn't blow your mind. God is good. God is good. Okay? But when we say God is good, he's not just good like a good man or a good woman or a, a good human father or a son or a daughter. It's not that kind of good. God's goodness isn't relative to human goodness. Okay? God is good in his essence. Goodness is not just an adjective that describes God. Good is what he is. And everything that is truly good and perfect is from him. And, and here's how, to try to help you understand this a little bit. Part of when, when we think of good, we describe something that's good just when it doesn't have evil. All right? It's the absence of something. Put it this way. Let, let's, let's bring it into the kitchen. All right? Um, let's say you go into the kitchen and you want to eat a pear. Everybody, some people like pears, some people don't. You pick up a pear off the counter and you look at that pear and you're like, huh, I don't see like any bruises on this pear. It's not scratched up. It seems like it looks good. Feels all right when I lift it, look at it. It's a good pear. That's what we would tell somebody. Or, or maybe we ought to talk about avocados. Okay, that's even uh, maybe a better description because here's what happens with avocados. You pick up an avocado and it's like, oh yeah, it feels right, it looks right, it, it, it's got just a little bit of give, but not too much give. So you think, oh, this is a good avocado. But what happens when you cut open that avocado? Sometimes it's good, and you're like, yeah, it was a good avocado. Other times it wasn't so good of an avocado, right? It looked good, it seemed good, it looked like it was okay. That's humans. That's how we are. That's how we describe something that's good. But God... It's not just that he has an absence of evil. He has a fullness of goodness. So he is truly good all the way to the core. Now, I hope God doesn't judge me for comparing him to an avocado. <laughs> I'm not trying to do that completely. 
But do you see the point? There's a difference there. We view something that's good just because it doesn't have something obviously bad. But when we talk about the goodness of God, God is through and through good, as good as good can be. He's good in the fullness of himself. He's goodness and perfection to the core. And that truth about God is very important for our Christian life. One uh, Bible scholar named Kent Hughes said this. He said, it is impossible to walk with God if we question his goodness. Now, he's not making a statement about salvation. He's not saying that, oh, you can't be saved unless you know God is truly good in your inmost being. What he's saying is, it's hard to actually live life as a Christian in the fullness of what God calls us to live as Christians if we're not certain that God's good. Why? Because it's really hard to trust a God that you're not sure if he's good or not. It's really hard to trust a God uh, that, that you're not sure if he's, if there's some amount of evil in him, some amount of wickedness, maybe he loves you, maybe he doesn't. Can you put your faith and trust in him? Only to a certain extent. But if God is good, absolutely without question good, and perfect in every way, he's a God that you can trust and lean on and look to. And the goodness of God is so central to who he is that if we miss it, what happens is we get stuck kind of waiting to begin the journey. It's like we may have even said, all right, yeah, I want to trust you, God, but I don't know if I can actually live my life in a way that trusts you and push myself in that way. It's hard to trust God if you're not certain that he's good. But the Bible teaches us that God is good, good to the core. And our good God gives us good and perfect gifts. Now, when you read that passage in James, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from him. We might first think about spiritual gifts. When you think, okay, God gives us gifts. You might say, all right, well, he gives us life. That's a good gift. That's a physical gift. But a lot of times when we think about the gifts of God, we think of like spiritual things, kind of ethereal out there. Maybe it's talents that he gave somebody and not somebody else. Or maybe it's opportunities that come our way. But, and those are absolutely included in God's gifts. But James was probably thinking of actual physical, tangible gifts when he wrote this. And the only reason I say that is because where he goes on here, when he uses this phrase to describe God, that says, he's the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Now, what the, the language scholars teach us about this when they go through it is they tell us what James is referring to by the words that he uses is he's actually talking about astronomy. When he says he's the father of lights, he's talking about the heavenly beings, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the, the celestial bodies, all right? And, and what James is saying is he is the father of these lights. It's, he's talking about the, the, the relationship, God's relationship to the universe itself. He's the creator of all these things. But where he talks about the variation and shadows due to change, what he's talking about is what we're dealing with here, with the sunspot in the middle of the gym. He's talking about the way that the, the moon would wax and wane, the way the, the earth spinning on its axis is seeing day and night and, and orbiting around the sun, the, the time of the year, right? Things are changing. 
Things are moving in the heavens even. They're always changing. And what he says here is he says, with the father of all of this, the God who's above all of the cosmic everything, he does not change. There's no variation with him. There's no shadow that's coming and going as the day goes on with God. He's the same. God does not change, but everything else does. What the Bible teaches us is that God is stable. God is the foundation and the stability of all things. He is unmoving and he is unmoved. I know this is deep and philosophical, but sit with that for a minute. Think about that. God does not change. He does not move. Do you realize how comforting that is? It should be. It should be comforting because we as humans, we're fragile. We're volatile. I see my brother sitting back here with a sling on his arm right now. You know, like we have things that change, things that break, things that make us fall apart. We shift and change. Our lives are full of ups and downs. There's life and death and tragedy and victory. Our fears come and go. Most of the things that you're worried about today will probably not make any difference to you in five years. Almost everything. There may be a few things that last that long with us, but everything's changing all of the time. We live in a churning, changing world, but God is not affected by those things. That's why it's comforting. Because we realize no matter what's moving around, what's running out of control, what's happening over here or over there, what feels out of control, there's a God behind all of this that is not affected by that change. And Jesus, being the Son of God, shares that same attribute. In Hebrews 13.8, it tells us this. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change either. And what he has said and what he has done does not change. His plan to redeem us and to restore us as his people has not and will not ever change. That's why we refer to Jesus as the anchor of our soul. Because what he has said and what he has done, it's going to stay that way. In fact, in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus himself said, and he was speaking to his disciples here, the follower, his followers, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Even earth itself, someday the Bible tells us, it's going to be refashioned into a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be glorious without any sin or fallenness, no disease, no death, no pain, no suffering. That's what we look forward to as believers. In the meantime, though, we know that this earth and this place, there's going to be a lot of fallenness, a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain. But what does he say? He says, look, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words, the things that I have done, who I am, it's not moving. It's not going to budge. And what God wills, will be done. And so, as we look at verse 18 here, if, if it is God's will that we would be, as it says there in verse 18, the first fruits of his creatures, 
that that is the way it's going to be. Well, what on earth does that mean, being a first fruit? Okay, so I told you that um, in the book of James, one of the things that we learn about James is that James was writing this letter as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which was a church of primarily Jewish people that became Christians. So they had a Jewish heritage in Jerusalem. And, and as we learned in the beginning of James, he's writing this letter to all those other Jews that have been scattered throughout the world. All right? And so when he uses this phrase, first fruits, because that's not a term that you've probably used in your conversation this week. When he, when he uses that word, he's speaking to a crowd of Jews. And the Jews would have immediately known what he's talking about when he's talking about first fruits. And the reason is this is because for the Jews, they had three feasts throughout the year that, that, they were, uh, that were mandatory feasts that they would all be a part of, okay? And the first one of those feasts was called the Feast of Firstfruits, also sometimes referred to as the Feast of the Harvest. And the firstfruits were considered holy and belonging to the Lord, all right? I'm going to take you back in history. We're going to read it out of Leviticus. Leviticus 23, 9 to 14 says this. And this is as the Lord has called Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt. And he's speaking through his, his leader, Moses. And it says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits." of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf. A sheaf is like a bundle, okay? So when your, your crops are ready to harvest, you go out into the field, you take one bundle, and then you bring it back to the temple. And it says, and the, the, the priest, he's gonna wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. And on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. Don't know what that is. You can look that one up on your own. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings, all right? So the Jews would have been raised from the time they were little kids all the way through adulthood knowing we have the, this feast called the Feast of first fruits. And what we do when it comes harvest time is we go and we take this first bundle and then we have this party. We have a feast. That's what the rest of it is. It's a meal. It's a Thanksgiving meal, all right? And what it is is it's coming before you even pull in your harvest, because as we'll see in a minute, 50 days later, after they've done all the harvesting, they have another feast. But the first feast is the first fruits. And so what they say is, look, Lord, we're going to set aside the very first thing that we take out of our fields. And we're going we're to call it the first fruits. And we're going to bring it and thank you for it. Okay? And then 50 days later, they would have the feast of ingathering, where they would present another meal offering. But this time, instead of just having uh, a sheaf of grain, they've actually turned that grain into bread at that point. And so instead of the, the, the sheaf of, of the wheat, uh, you'd bring actually the, the, the fresh loaves of bread, all right? Um, not just the grain itself. And as, as 
time went on, that even that word first fruits was part of the, the, the way that they would offer sacrifices to God. In Exodus 23, 19, um, it, he says this. He says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And it didn't just extend to the fields, but then all the livestock, all of their orchards, all of their increase and provision. And it was different than, you, you probably have heard of tithing and tithes. That was a, a tenth of everything that they received. This was actually a separate offering, this offering of the first fruits. And, and all of it, like the tithe as well, both of them, they pointed back to God's goodness and God's gifts. What they were saying was, as they would go through this feast of first fruits, was God gave us this. God provided this. We want to offer it back to him. Okay? So hopefully that starts giving you an understanding then of, of what is being described by James. So what is it that James describes when he says that we are God's first fruits? What he's saying is, he says, look, you as Christians have been given a great privilege of becoming God's special people. In the same way that the people would say, whoa, that's the first fruits. We got to take that to God. That belongs to him. What this passage is saying is he says, you, if you're a Christian, God is saying, you're mine. You're my first fruit. You're my special person. Apart from the rest of the world, apart from the billions of other people that aren't mine, you're mine. You are, you are mine. It's a privilege that none of the rest of creation shares. And just as the first fruits of their crops were considered to be the Lord's holy belongings, so are we as his children. So how is it that we found ourselves in that place of incredible privilege? How is it that we can say, whoa, I am, I'm God's? It comes back to the fact that he's the giver of good gifts. He is the father of lights that gives those good gifts. In the church, we call it grace. The story of the Christmas season is all about this very thing. The story of Christmas, I know I'm giving it away, but start thinking about it. We're already there, guys. What's the story of Christmas? It's God giving the gift of his son to humanity to come to earth, to reveal God's plan of redemption gifting us with salvation from sin and the death that it brings. And that is what we, if you are here today as a Christian, that's what you've received. And if you're not here a Christian, uh, today here a Christian, that's what is offered to you by God. The Bible teaches us that he desires that none would perish, but that all would come to that everlasting life. And it's a free gift of grace offered to us all. And the good part is, do we have to be perfect to receive the good gifts? The answer is no. We do not. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So our perfect father gave the perfect gift for people who are far from perfect. That's good news. That's a good thing. And not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he's given us 
His Spirit, which gives us an incomparable potential. And that's, that's this whole concept here. We each have the potential to become all that God has for us. So the question that I have for you as I wrap up here today, is this how you view your life? Is this how you view God? As the giver of all good things. An incredible gift has been given to us by this perfect, holy, almighty God. But have you allowed the pressure of the world around you to kind of diminish the truth of that in your heart? Because what happens is we kind of forget about the God of the universe sometimes because we're too busy paying attention to the stuff of earth right here in front of us. And it's very easy for us to be crushed by the weight of that. But let me just ask you, are you grateful today for what God has given you? Really what I'm calling us to this morning is to change our perspective because that's what James is doing in this passage. We are blessed as the sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted into his family and given eternal life, but it's really easy for us to focus on what we don't have and what we want to get, especially this time of year. That's what the the marketing teams are, are planning on, right? That's why they're showing you what is new and shiny. They're wanting you to know, oh, I don't have that. Well, I have one of those, but it's not that model. Here's the new one of that one, right? That's what, that's what we're, we're aimed at. But I want you to be reminded about what you have been given by God today. And this week is a week to give thanks, a week to be grateful we have a feast to celebrate the goodness of God. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. And remember that this week as you celebrate Thanksgiving. And, and one more thing before I pray and finish here today. I, I, I want to give you a spiritual exercise to take home with you for those of you who want homework. Um, maybe take some time this week to sit down, set your phone aside, and all the other things that can give you notifications and maybe even with your family or with a friend. And sit down and write down all of the things that you're thankful for. All the things that you know have come from the hand of God. And silence the negative thoughts. All right, because here's what's going to happen. I know how distracted we are as humans. As soon as you get a minute or two where you're away from all those, those things constantly battering you. Whoa. I'm here with my thoughts and my thoughts start going in places and whoa, what am I thinking about? What am I feeling about? What am I worried about? All of that. But silence the negative thoughts, all right? This isn't a, a profit and loss sheet. This is just the profits. Ignore the losses for now. Focus on those good things and then take a few minutes to reflect on the fact that you are God's first fruit, his special chosen people. And sit with that. And then pour out your heart in prayer and gratitude to God. All right? It's not too hard. You can all do it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. And God, this morning I know that there are some of us who need to hear this passage today because we need to be reminded of your love for us, of your desire to bless us, and that you are truly 
the good God above all things. God, I am thankful that you've taught us today that you do not change. You do not fail. You're not out of control. You're not up in heaven somewhere fretting about what's happening in the world around us. You let us deal with all that worry. (laughs) But you're not worried. You're not afraid. You are good and you're perfect in every way. And Lord, I pray this week as we go through a week of thanksgiving and a, a week that we're considering who you are and who we are to you, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged. I know there are some here today that are probably feeling some discouragement in their life. Maybe they look around at, at the, the politics in the world. Maybe they, they look at the suffering and sadness around them and, and it's, it can become discouraging. But Lord, today we want to be those people that can shift our perspective, that we can set our mind, as it says in Colossians, on things above where you are seated. And Lord, we pray that we would be those people of hope, those people of joy, those people of peace. Even when the world around us is difficult and full of tumult and struggle, that we can have our faith and our hope anchored in you our good God. And so, Lord, as we go through this week, Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of that and that we could remind others of that. Our world around us needs that encouragement. They need to know that you are for them, that you desire to save them and to bless them and to give them good gifts that can only come from you. And so, Lord, make us those people. Transform us Make us more and more like your son, Jesus, and fill us with your goodness. We pray these things in Jesus' name.